0: Hello and welcome to this Sound on Sound podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White and I'm making this recording between doing a short Q&A tour of the UK and setting off again to the AES show in San Francisco. Hugh and I will put together a podcast looking at the highlights from the show once we get back but for now we're both trying to catch up on our reviews and Hugh can't do this podcast today because he hasn't finished his homework yet. During one of the recent Q&A sessions, I was asked why modern records sound so different from the classic tracks we remember back from the 60s and 70s, and that's a really good question because the technology we use to record now has far less influence on the end result than we often imagine. A lot of people think digital, analogue, analogue, digital, that's what the difference is, but no, I think the actual approach taken to recording and mixing makes a far greater difference than the choice of recording medium. The limited number of tracks available during the early days of recording meant that the majority of records were made by capturing complete performances, sometimes augmented by vocal overdubs and added solos, but by and large it was a band playing in a room. That meant using space and screening to keep the spill down to a reasonable level, but it couldn't be eliminated entirely, so it became part of the sound of the recording. Indeed, some say that spill is an essential part of the sound of those early records. Because almost everything was recorded as a performance, that came across in the feel of the music, whereas today's pop music, I think, tends to rely so much on extensive overdubbing and quantizing and clinical separation that it doesn't have the same organic kind of feel. Another consequence of the limited number of record tracks was that if you needed a double track sound, you might get two or more session players in to perform the same part. Phil Spector was known for this approach, of course, with up to three grand pianos and a host of guitar players on the same session. That sounds far bigger and more organic than trying to fake it all using plugins. A further difference between modern and older recordings is in the approach to mixing. Today, everything often rides on the back of a very loud drum track, whereas on a Phil Spector record, for example, the tambourine might be louder than the entire drum kit. The groove came from the way everyone played together, not from having it beaten into your skull by brute force. Mixers also tended to be simpler back then, as there was no automation, so it was a case of all hands on the mixer for mixdown, with band members being co-opted and coordinated by the engineer or producer, while making fader moves that were marked onto the desk with bits of wax pencil. If you got it wrong, you had to do it again. At the end of the process, mastering was essentially uh, what was needed to make the records play reliably on vinyl, so there were no extravagant levels of bass and far less overall compression. The result was that you had records with more dynamics, And though subsequent CD releases often sounded far worse than the original vinyl, I'm sure this was more to do with attempts to digitally remaster the material to make it sound louder and brighter than to any technical shortcomings in the CD format. And now some questions from our readers. A number of our readers have asked us whether we think that modelling equipment sounds as good as the real thing. Well, as our politician friends would say, that isn't really the question you should have asked. Often what you really need to know is whether the software model is more appropriate to use than the real thing. After all, a software model of an existing piece of analog gear might provide a very close approximation, but the real thing is always going to be, well, more real because that's the goal the software is trying to chase. Of course, there has to be another reason for choosing software emulations other than the cost. Where the software emulation is so close that in the context you intend to use it, nobody will hear the difference then the convenience of something like a plug-in that needs no cabling, and where the settings are stored along with the song, uh, becomes very valuable. Similarly, a model guitar amplifier might not quite sound like a Marshall stack running at full belt, but if you're recording in a flat, or you've got neighbours, then the modelling approach might just let you get adequate results without starting a war. On the other hand, if you have the space and noise isn't an issue, then I'd go for micing the guitar amp every time. Much depends on the results you're trying to achieve, because surely it's just as important that your model amplifier or processor sounds musical as it is that it sounds exactly like what it sets out to emulate. In other words, will it help you make great-sounding music? If it does, then perhaps the absolute authenticity isn't the main criteria. (music) This next question crops up very regularly, and generally goes along the lines of... Why do you always suggest facing the speakers down the long axis of a room in a typical home studio? This is usually asked by people who would find it more convenient to have the speakers firing across because they've got more room for their keyboards and that kind of thing. There are a couple of reasons for this which apply in particular to smaller rooms of the type used in a domestic studio, maybe a converted garage or a bedroom for example. When the speakers fire across the width of a small room the modal bumps and dips in the frequency response tend to be significantly more pronounced than when firing the speakers down the length of the room. We've also noticed that these bumps and dips tend to vary quite dramatically as you move away from your usual mixing position if you're firing the speakers across the room. Another reason is that there tends to be an area of bass cancellation somewhere close to the centre of a small room and this is especially problematic with rooms that are square or even cube shaped. When working across a smaller room the placement of the desk and the monitor speakers often means you end up with your chair close to the centre of the room and that's where all the low end seems to vanish. And a natural consequence of this is that you're going to start adding more bass to your mixers and then when you play them in a decent room they're going to sound too bassy. Of course some acoustic treatment will always be required to get the best from a room, and regardless of which way you face the speakers. Having said that, you'll find it much easier to get the acoustic treatment right in a room with the speakers firing down the long axis. This question, gleaned from our forum, relates to commercial vertical corner bass traps and their placement. These are the kind of big foam wedges that you can stick in the corners. The reader had bought a couple of four foot by two foot traps and wanted to know the best height from the floor at which to place them. Well, there are two issues here. Base traps of this nature work best if they extend the full height of the room as that provides the greatest thickness of material for waves approaching at an oblique angle. Where this isn't possible, you should get the best results by placing vertical corner traps either touching the ceiling or touching the floor because corners comprising three surfaces, such as two walls and a ceiling, are where the maximum sound induced pressure changes occur. The best option, though, would be to buy more traps and cover the whole of the corner from floor to ceiling. Well, that's about all I've got time for right now as I need to pack my toothbrush for the AES show in San Francisco so we'll tell you all about that in the next podcast. So it's goodbye from me, Paul White. Have a good month.